Hi friend, you're listening to a London Lyceum exclusive episode that is typically only available to subscribers. If you want to have access to all of our exclusive content, including Kiffin's Keep, Generally Particular, Typology by Immersion, The Hanover House, and all of our live stream content, consider joining for just $5 a month. Not only will you be getting access to all of this content and more, but you'll also be supporting and investing in an institution serious about thinking. So why not go ahead and click the link in the description now and enjoy all of the exclusive content directly to your mobile device or wherever you listen. As always, we're thinking about new ways to get you thinking, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Jake Stone. I'm Jesse Owens. And we welcome you to another episode of Generally Particular, a production of the London Lyceum. Generally Particular is a show dedicated to discussing and reflecting on the whole Baptist story. We are a show about Baptist, by Baptist, and for Baptist, as well as Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, and Lutherans. And yes, even if by some chance there is a Jesuit who is joining us. I am a Calvinistic Baptist, and Jesse is an Arminian Baptist. In the 17th and 18th centuries, we would have been known as a particular and general Baptist, and so we've brought those together in what we think is a fun and educational venture called Generally Particular. Now, Jesse and I join you today a week after the Great Freeze of 2024. Oof. Now, Jesse has is more Yankee than I am because he's lived more up north than me. And let me just say that last week here in Louisville, I think we went five or six days without it getting above freezing. I'm talking about getting up in the morning and it being five, six, Saturday, two, with the wind chills negative 10 and below. Mm. Folks, that's cold. And I... My hat goes off to the people who live in Minnesota Mm. and Vermont and Canada, because even if you might find 90 degrees and humidity oppressive, give me that over what I felt last week. What about you, Jesse? Yeah, I, I'm. I'm with. Don't you. let Jesse be shy. He did a polar plunge last week in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did a polar plunge and I, I recorded it and posted it on on social media. <laughs> no, his not his no, his, a, his a, a non account. Something. Yeah, on my burner account. That's yeah. you know Jake has a, a burner account that uh, that gives political commentary, uh, which was given a lot of political commentary last night uh, during the New Hampshire primaries. Jake wants to say a little bit more about that here in just a moment. Uh, and, and mine is me doing the polar plunge. That's, that's, that's exactly right. Now it was, uh, it was really cold here. You know, I think it might've been a little bit colder in Louisville on some days, but we got a lot more snow and then some ice and barely got out of the house. And so, yeah, so it was, uh, it was an interesting week. It was an interesting week. I, I think I've had my fill of winter and I'm ready for spring bring on summer. You know, when you go through weather like this, you say, I promise I'm not going to complain when it's 95 and 90% humidity, but we probably will. But but I'm with you. I will take what I will take that all day, every day over, over this winter weather. 
We had we had we had more snow come last Thursday night and Friday morning, and of last week. Of course, it had snowed the Sunday night too. I had to drive in at home, and you know everybody makes fun of how slow I drive, which is not true. I go five to ten miles per hour with the speed limit. Oh, I was going, that is. I don't I, think that's true. I don't it think is true. true. And um, I I was driving slow <laughs> to go home last week because I get nervous and. You know, it, it came down. We got two inches here last week, and I know people might be listening and saying, that's nothing to this Mississippi boy it is. And uh and but we still we still opened Friday for business at the library, but it was cold and the wind was blowing mm. and oh it's just well here you know. this, this is a different stuff. Back home, I didn't look forward to spring because spring was short and it meant summer was here. But up here, I long for spring. Yeah. I, I am ready. We've got two months mm. to go. I hope it. I hope the groundhog does whatever he's supposed to do. That it means springs around the corner. For the for the years that Tiffany and I lived in Louisville, I remember sitting at my carol in the library over uh, by the window. I was right next to a window, looking uh, towards the parking lot uh, there behind the library, and I and we got a lot of snow in the years that we were there. People who had lived there for a while said that it was, it was an abnormal amount of snow, but yeah, I remember looking out that window thinking spring cannot come soon enough. Now the difference is in Louisville, they're far enough North that they actually have equipment to remove the snow. When you get snow in Nashville, uh, you know, or, or in, you know, where you're from in Mississippi, it's like, you don't go anywhere till it melts. So schools were shut down from last Monday. Well, the uh, public schools were out for MLK and my oldest did not go back to school until today. Today, they were out all of last week and Monday and Tuesday and they went back today. Wow. So, yeah. And right off of the Christmas break too. So you, <laughs> yeah, 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 we had all, we had all seen a lot of each other. We sure yeah. have. Well, it was, Je- Jesse was so weak in the cold that he wouldn't even let me come down and have lunch last Wednesday because he said he couldn't get out of his house. So, yeah. Well, my driveway is on a, on a decent slope. You've seen it. And, uh, and it was completely iced over until probably Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, but y'all live, y'all, the, the you live on that golf course. Certainly yeah. they had the, the equipment out there clearing that stuff out pretty fast. I mean, it ain't they, like you're on the normal rural roads. They don't get that, that access. Our, Jesse's our, neighbor is an ex-congresswoman from the, from that area. So, you know. No, she's not. I've well, seen she's, her, her. Her house is a castle, folks. She's not my not my immediate neighbor, though. She She does live in the area, though. She does live in the area. So, yeah, I mean, our streets were okay, but my driveway was like a, an ice skating rink until, uh, until yeah, probably Monday or Tuesday this week. So, our road all, that, is- all that to say, let's, let's move on to spring. Um, bring us spring. Bring us summer. We're ready. We're ready. Sunshine. Okay. Now it's just raining here. So that's what we've got now here. Yeah, same here. So today we are going to be talking about in our series, Baptist Bios, we are discussing a man named Thomas Monk. And Thomas Monk, I never knew or heard of until I met Jesse. So Jesse, if he could come back 
as a Baptist from the past would want to be Thomas Monk. Yeah. And we want to make it clear, though, that Monk is not as in a Catholic, Roman Catholic monk here. Um, although, you know, some people do think that Arminianism and popery are, you know, somewhat similar. Basically but, the same thing. Yeah, basically the same thing. And although there are people who say that, you know, Calvinism is Roman Catholicism, too. Um, <laughs> so I, I have heard that from some fundamentalist. Well, people. you know, here's here's how it works, Jake. I don't, I don't know if you if you've quite figured it out, how, how it works. But what you want to do in in, you know, if, if if there's a particular group that's kind of your theological um, opponent or something like that, what you do is you try to attach them to some other heretical view or some other group that people despise. And then if you can kind of link them with that group, then boom, you've uh, you've accomplished your task. So. Exactly. Well, we are looking at the end, and this is the chapter in this very good book, Arminian Baptist, a biographical history of free will Baptist. And Jesse wrote the chapter on Thomas Monk. And this is probably my favorite chapter in this book <laughs> um, for a very simple reason. It's it's audience. because it's because you think it, you think that it's really well written. That's that's the reason, isn't it? That'd be point two. Okay, okay, okay. But point one for why this is my favorite chapter is because yours truly is in this chapter. Jake's I am done. mentioned in the last footnote of this, and these nice words are here. Many thanks to Jake Stone for pointing me to this account from Spurgeon. Of course, yeah. I've never received any reimbursement or royalty for my name being in here and contributing that. But, you know, we won't debate no. that point too long. If, but I, anyway. if, I were, if I were to give you a portion of what I've received. Uh, <laughs> would it buy a piece of gum? No, no. Okay. It, it would be like a, <laughs> I'd, I'd have to I'd have to take a. I'd have to take a portion of uh, of of the free book I received and give it and give it to you. But anyway, okay. I also like this chapter because the word quoting monk popish is used in here, and that makes it mm. always a really good chapter. We love so, that. So, Jesse, let's talk about Thomas Monk today. Let's just start with the big picture. Who was he? Yeah. So um, the title of this chapter is uh, Thomas Monk, a farmer theologian. Uh, it's really difficult to know a lot about Thomas Monk's life. And that's true of a lot of Baptists in this period. Uh, it's difficult to get a sense of maybe the early periods of their life because just so much is lost to history. There aren't biographies often written of them. So uh, we're dependent upon, you know, just kind of scant resources and trying to figure figure out you know, some things about them. But by all indications, um, Thomas Monk was a farmer, uh, seems to have come from a farming family, pastored in the Midlands uh, of, of England, uh, I think in Buckinghamshire. And uh, so he was a farmer um, and, and a pastor, but really an incredible theologian. I think that's one of the things that really stands out the most to me and something I try to emphasize in this chapter is um, it, it would appear, you know, if Monk is a is a dissenter, which he certainly is, that he wouldn't have had the same access to uh, formal theological education. He wouldn't have been able to go or, uh, to Oxford or to Cambridge. And so he didn't have, have those sorts of resources. But when you read Thomas Monk's writings, whether it's his contribution to an Orthodox creed or uh, one of his other works, uh, Cure for the Cankering Error, He's just constantly drawing on the uh, theological uh, tradition that we have, uh, the early church, 
uh, and, and many of the reformers and even some of the Protestant scholastics to make his case in, in the confession of faith uh, in Orthodox creed. He actually reprints some of the early confessions of faith, the early creeds. And, um, and so th that's, that's really striking. Monk was born sometime probably in the 1620s, uh, 30s, 40s, somewhere in there. We, re we really don't know. Um, we know he's alive and ministering sometime in the, the mid-1640s, and he dies sometime around 1685, uh, would certainly be the, the case. Um, but um, Monk just plays a really instrumental role during a really important time for the English General Baptist. He uh, is a stalwart defender of orthodoxy on the doctrine of the Trinity, and particularly the incarnation. So this is one of the things that we can kind of tease out a little bit here. But if you're very familiar with General Baptist history at all, one of the things that often comes up is what's referred to as the Caffin controversy. And it's a, it's a controversy surrounding a General Baptist pastor by the name of Matthew Caffin, who held, it seems that he held, heterodox beliefs on uh, the incarnation. And much of Thomas Monk's work seems to be aimed at uh, rebutting not only anti-Trinitarianism uh, in England in the, the mid to late 17th century, but specifically the teachings of Matthew Caffin. And he devotes a lot of his en energy and his published writing to, to dealing with that. Uh, Thomas Monk also, though, was someone who experienced um, persecution for being a Baptist, for being a dissenter. And so there's a connection with Thomas Monk and William Kiffin. It appears that William Kiffin, uh, and this is something we, we talked about when we did the episode on Kiffin, uh, that, that Monk was either in prison or was connected with those who were imprisoned at, at Aylesbury uh, around uh, the 1640s. And Kiffin was involved in getting them out of uh, prison by making an appeal uh, to, uh, to, the, to the king. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so basically Monk is a General Baptist pastor, a, a theologian, a farmer, someone without a lot of formal training and education, but someone who uh, is, is incredibly steeped in the Christian tradition and draws on that for some of his theological writings that are really careful and nuanced and have surprising uh, theological depth for, quite frankly, most anyone of his time, but certainly for a Baptist of his time. So that, that's a, maybe a, a brief introduction. So let's talk about some of these writings that you mentioned first. Um, tell us a little bit about this science groans for her distressed. This yeah. seems to be a work that Monk uh, writes as a way of defending religious liberty, liberty of conscience, and the rights for Baptists and other dissenters to be able to publicly gather and worship. So um, tell us a little bit about that, and then kind of how would you define where it ranks among Baptist literature of this century dealing with the subject of church and state. Yeah. So um, Zion's Groans for Her Distressed is, I think, a, a multi-authored work, um, and uh, it has multiple signatories. They're all General Baptists, and, um, and Thomas Monk is the first listed in, in, the, in the listing of names. It's published in 1661, uh, not too long after uh, the restoration of the monarchy with Charles II. And in it, Monk actually appeals to the primary General Baptist Confession of Faith in the second half of the 17th century, 
which is the standard confession of faith. And in it, I would say that he just gives a standard Baptist defense of religious liberty, of religious toleration. And um, so he appeals for the distinction between uh, the old and new covenants in some ways and the ways in which the um, nation of Israel and what you have in England and an established church, that those are not synonymous. Those are not the same thing. So instructions that are given to the nation of Israel are not something that you can just bring over or carry over into the church of England and then persecute. So he argues for um, he argues for freedom of conscience. He argues for religious liberty. Um, it's hard to know how much of this he wrote himself. But again, when it comes to the signatories, he's the first listed. So I'd say there's a good chance he played a very important role in it. Um, there were there are a lot of good lines in here. I was trying to think which one uh, I might. Well, I'll, I, I will read the one that you have in the book in your chapter okay. here that I thought was really good. O ye rulers of the world and inhabitants of the earth, this was the way the Lord of all things with his disciples and followers took to plant and establish the doctrine of the gospel in the hearts and affections of the sons of men. Be ye not, therefore, unlike those whom you say you follow by imposing your doctrines and traditions by violence of penal laws and edicts to the imprisoning, banishing, and spoiling the goods of the conscientious, causing them as saints of old to be destitute, afflicted, and tormented, although for their innocency and uprightness, the world is not worthy of them, with an allusion there to Hebrews, the end of Hebrews 11. So yeah, I yeah. think it's very clear, you know, I mean, all all Baptists of this period would be affirming this and arguing this on, on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah, and I, so yeah, that's I think that's exactly right. And that's a really good point. You know, one of the things that we were talking about um, prior to coming on here is a work from uh, from 1660, oh, I think it's 1660, that's uh, the humble apology of some commonly called Anabaptist. And so uh, the humble apology is really interesting because I think it takes a similar line of thought and it actually draws on some of these confessions of faith among general and particular Baptists. And you have, um, you have people signing the humble apology who are both uh, Arminian Baptists and Calvinist Baptists. So the first signer of the humble apology is William Kiffin. But you also have Francis Smith, who is one of the most well-known General Baptists, uh, was a, um, a, a printer, printed a lot of the General Baptist works uh, during this time period. And uh, so, so to have all of these various figures kind of from different groups in 1660, writing or assigning this work, defending religious liberty, religious toleration, but also their willingness uh, within his jurisdiction to, to obey the magistrate, uh, to obey the, the, the edicts and the commands of, of the king. Um, yeah, I, so I think you're right. Yeah, th this is representative in many ways of what Baptists throughout this period would have argued. And I think that's demonstrated by another work like the Humble Apology, but many similarities with Zion's groans uh, for distressed, which which Thomas Monk is a signer of. So then speak, let's look at the defense that he gives of Trinitarian orthodoxy. And you've talked about the work that he publishes in 1673, a cure for the cankering error of the, say it for us. Of the new, new Eutychians. Eutychians, right. yeah. Eutychians. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's right. So Eutychianism is kind of an, an ancient heresy 
that they're dealing with in the early church. And so what Monk is saying is there is really a revival of many of the anti-Trinitarian heresies that were combated by the creeds and councils. And so he actually draws on those creeds and councils. I do think that Thomas Monk has in mind some of the anti-Trinitarianism of well-known anti-Trinitarians like um, uh, like Biddle and Best, um, who are uh, uh, well-known anti-Trinitarians in this period. Um, and there's kind of a proliferation of anti-Trinitarianism in the second half of the 17th century, but it affects the general Baptists, as I noted earlier, specifically through the writings, or not the writings, through the influence of Matthew Caffin uh, and the Caffin controversy. So I think that that Thomas Monk has in mind sort of this the the general rise of, of anti-Trinitarianism, but he also has in mind Matthew Caffin. <clears throat> so you see in the subtitle of this work, what what Monk is primarily pushing back against is those who would say that uh, that Christ did not receive his flesh from the Virgin Mary and is therefore not the, the physical descendant of David or is not the descendant of David according to the flesh. And what he's trying to do is tease out all of the implications of that. And he's what he ultimately says is, if, if Jesus does not receive his, his flesh from Mary, um, and if he's not the descendant of David according to the flesh, then he is not the perfect mediator between God and man. His atoning work uh, is, is not what scripture presents it as. And so he's dealing with all of these theological nuances on the incarnation, and he's drawing on things like the Chalcedonian definition, uh, as well as some of the writings of uh, people like Peter Martyr, Peter Martyr Vermigli, uh, which, which I find very fascinating. But, um, but in doing this, he's showing the connection and the significance of this uh, for our salvation, for the atonement. And, it, and it, to me, it's like he really gets it. He, he gets it. He understands that our understanding of the incarnation isn't theological speculation. So sometimes when we talk about uh, you know, he's addressing these ancient heresies like Eutychianism. It's kind of like, it sounds like we're talking about how many angels can dance on the, the head of a pin, right? Um, it sounds like speculation. But what the, the Council of Nicaea points out in the Nicene Creed is that these things are spelled out uh, and they're, they're trying to clarify them because the incarnation is about us and our salvation, and, uh, and that's really what Thomas Monk is, is concerned about, not only getting the person of Christ work, uh, right, but realizing the person of Christ and the work of Christ are inseparably linked. And that linked, and that's, what he's, that's really what he's pushing back against, I think, in dealing with some of the false teachings of Matthew Caffin. And you have this uh, great section that you provide for us as a summary of what he's arguing in his views on Christology, where Monk writes, Wherefore not ceasing to be God as thou wert, thou began'st to be what thou wast not. Man to the end thou mightest be a perfect mediator betwixt God and man, which were both in one person, God that thou mightest satisfy, and man that though mightest thou that thou that though mightest suffer that since man had sinned and God was offended, 
though which wert God and man, might satisfy God for man. Yeah. Yeah. I think he, there he's, he's showing the, the importance, the necessity of the, of the two natures, uh, in the singular person of Christ, uh, for our, uh, for our salvation, uh, and that, and that Christ become, um, fully man in, in every sense. And so that, that's what Chalcedon is trying to do. That's what Chalcedon is trying to achieve is to really spell out what does it mean for Christ to be fully man? What, what all is entailed there? And, uh, and, and that's what Monk is really, really coming after. I do, um, I do like the way in which uh, E. Gordon Rupp uh, says about this particular work. He says basically that uh, no one of this period uh, produced an, an abler defense of uh, the doctrine of the Trinity than Caffin's uh, or than Monk's uh, Cure for the Cankering Air. Yeah, that was a little theological slip there. Slip there. <laughs> little that's slip because, there. That's because we know where Jesse's theological allegiances are. Notice, folks, that he said Caffin appeared to be. He was a radical. There's no appearing. Yeah. Well, so by the way, I mean, I I think we're we're gonna do we're gonna do an episode on Matthew Caffin on here. We're gonna do a sort of a, a yeah, theological. Jesse making papal decrees here about what we're going to do on this show. We're, we're going to. Well, that's not true. We've talked about this. Um, you know, it's 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 really a strange thing. So um, there, there are particular figures. Joseph Wright is one of them, of the English General Baptist, who, who comes to the General Assembly and he says, I have heard Matthew Caffin say these things, these heretical things. And Caffin basically denies it. He says, you know, maybe there are some things related to Athanasius's understanding of, of the, the incarnation and the doctrine of the Trinity that I can't really make sense of, but basically I believe in accordance with, with the tradition. And then in the 1690s, they edit uh, the standard confession to tighten up its language on the doctrine of the Trinity and the incarnation and uh, in order to rule out some of the false teachings attributed to Matthew Caffin, and then he just strolls up there and subscribes to it. So it's just like, yeah, I, the reason I say seems is because there is no just absolute definitive proof of Caffin's beliefs. Uh, but I do think in retrospect, when we put all of the pieces together, that he was heretical on the doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation. But the, but the guy just tried everything possible uh, to avoid being open about that. He, he tried to sort of skate around the whole thing, again, including subscribing an Orthodox confession of faith on the doctrine of the Trinity. So, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's the reason I say it. But in, my, but in, in some of the things I've written and some of the things I've published, uh, I make it very clear that I think that, that the things that, that are attributed to Caff and that he does... I think he did actually believe those things and was heretical uh, on on the incarnation and the doctrine of the Trinity. I was also laughing because I, I wanted to read your paragraph where you give that Rupp quote and, and, and give some acknowledgement. But I, I, Jesse was ready for that to, to get that out there, which is good. You know, it's good. You know, you should be proud of your tradition. Yeah, I mean. Well, one that that uh, E. Gordon Rupp was aware of Thomas Monk and had read this. I mean, I, I was the first time I ran across that. I was kind of amazed. Um, I actually owe stumbling across that 
to something that William H. Brackney had written a very brief little section on Thomas Monk uh, in, in a work for Regent's Park. And he references Gordon Rupp. And I had read some of, some of Gordon Rupp's work for some other things I was working on, but I had never actually seen that. And so I turned to the page and uh, was shocked to, to find that. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great, great quote. And then to wrap up our discussion on Thomas Monk, talk to us about an Orthodox creed because it's a very fascinating document um, for a variety of reasons. Um, number one, uh, it is considered the most Calvinistic Arminian document that there is. Two, although uh, more, more, more specifically that we can prove without a, any controversy, is that you know he reprints the ecumenical creeds in this, which is a very fascinating move, um, especially with most people thinking that often that Baptists are, you know, totally opposed, number one, to creedalism. Yeah. But then number two, the way that he's standing in this tradition, and we should, might as well, you know, also add that a contemporary of his on the particular Baptist side, Hercules Collins and an Orthodox catechism, which is the baptized version of the Heidelberg, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, Hercules Collins includes the ecumenical creeds in there as well. So yeah. you've got two Baptists from the two streams at this period, um, really, you know, in, in, in confessional and catechism form saying this is where we stand. Yeah. So in our episode on Thomas Grantham, this is one of the things we talked about, but he reprints the Nicene Creed uh, in his major work. But in here, in an Orthodox creed, um, you have uh, you, you have the ecumenical creeds as well. Um, so an Orthodox creed is, is the ro- most robust, uh, general Baptist confession of faith, uh, that there is. It is interesting that they choose to call it an Orthodox creed. That's, uh, that's kind of fascinating in and of itself. Um, the, the creed, the confession spends, I think what we would consider an inordinate amount of space on dealing with matters related to Christology. So if you look at the Confession of Faith, you'll see there, there are uh, multiple articles on, on Orthodox Christology. And that, that tells us a little bit about the situatedness uh, of the creed. They're dealing with something specific, and that is the rise of anti-Trinitarianism in England in general. And, uh, and I think the, the heretical teachings of Matthew Caffin in particular. Um, so in Orthodox Creed, there, there are a lot of great lines in there, uh, especially from the preface that basically say, we are more than happy to draw on the, the best of the Christian tradition in order to defend Orthodoxy. And they, and they do that. Um, and uh, it, it really is uh, an amazing work. Thomas Monk is thought to be the sort of chief architect of the creed and of the confession. And I think that makes sense because um, it bears such uh, resemblance to what you find in the earlier work, A Cure for the Cankering Error. So it would make sense that with those similarities that that maybe he's sort of the chief architect. This, This Confession of Faith in Orthodox Creed is published in 1679. And it's published by some General Baptists uh, in in the Midlands and in several counties uh, in the Midlands. And it is subscribed by, I think is it, it's uh, 57, uh, maybe pastors, something like that uh, in the Midlands, 54. 
but it is never uh it is never it never serves as the sort of primary confession of the general assembly of general baptists so you have this large contingency of general baptists in the midlands who sign who subscribe this confession of faith but it's never adopted as the primary confession of faith for the general assembly um, but I do think one of the things you find in an Orthodox creed that is maybe different from some other Baptist confessions of faith, including the General Baptist Standard Confession, which is the confession uh, of, the, of the General Assembly, is that it is much more willing to use very theologically precise language about the doctrine of the Trinity, um, about the incarnation, in, in ways that maybe the Standard Confession isn't. So Monk and these Midlands General Baptists really are not hesitant at all to marshal um, this precise technical theological language to defend uh, orthodoxy, specifically the doctrine of the Trinity. And I think that's really important. And as we see the, the, the 17th century play on and we go into the beginning of the early 18th century, I think it's instructive that that sort of precision May, uh, may would have helped uh, not only Baptists, but also other dissenting groups in maintaining orthodoxy on the doctrine of the Trinity. And I think Monk and the Midlands General Baptists understood that in a way that maybe, maybe some others didn't. Um, Jake has mentioned it's, uh, it, it is the most robustly reformed of the uh, Baptist confessions of, of General Baptist confessions of faith uh, that there that there is, and, and it seems to uh, attempt to minimize some of the theological differences between Calvinist Baptists and Arminian Baptists. And there's a lot to be commended there. The, their discussion of a whole host of doctrines is really good and draws on the on the Reformed tradition, I think, in a really helpful way. That I would say is still Arminian, uh, but is robustly Reformed, and uh, I, I've been extremely helped by this confession of faith. I think it's it's probably the best uh, General Baptist confession of faith that, that there is. I think it's fascinating, the whole uh, title of the confession, which is an Orthodox creed or a Protestant confession of faith being an essay to unite and confirm all true Protestants in the fundamental articles of the Christian religion against the errors and heresies of Rome. Mm. I mean, that's 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 quite a, a mouthful. Now, I think people should know um, that it's very fascinating um, to consider Article 16, which is on the two covenants. And so you actually can see here a general Baptist covenant theology, how they use the terminology, how they flesh it out in the sense of the Reformed you know, tradition on, on federalism. You may not know the answer to this question, but I was kind of flipping through, and I, I think it find it interesting. There are only certain articles where it opens up in the words "we believe" or "we believe and confess." Um, article one of the essence of God starts off: "We verily believe that there is but one only living and true God." Um, number four: "We confess and believe that the Son of God or the Eternal Word is very and true God." Article 5, we believe that the only begotten Son of God, the second person, the sacred trinity, took to himself a true, real, and fleshly body. Uh, six, on the nature, two natures is we believe. Communication of properties, we believe. 
Holy Spirit, we believe. But I don't see that language used. Um, oh, let me take that on reprobation. It says we do believe. Um, it, do, you, do you know why only a handful out of all of these articles though they would have started off that way? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, almost all of the the ones that you mentioned, those early are articles, the Trinitarian, yes, are the Trinitarian ones. That's right. So you know, if you look at um, if you look at like the the, the Chalcedonian uh, definition, the Chalcedonian Creed, or you look at the Niceno Constantinopolitan Creed, that's the way that they structure it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my guess would be is that they're drawing on that. So mm-hmm. in 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 the Nicene Creed, you get oh, we believe uh, regarding the Father, uh, and then you get we believe regarding the Holy Spirit, uh, and something similar in uh, in the Chalcedonian definition as well. So my guess is because the majority of the ones that you're referencing there are dealing with those same doctrines is that they're kind of trying to follow that pattern, uh, would be, would be my best guess. And and I think that actually makes really good sense. Sometimes you just shoot from the hip. Uh, but I, I think that actually squares quite well. Yeah. So, Jesse, if there's one thing that you want us to take away from Thomas Monk, mm. what would it be? Um, yeah, you know, I when I talk about Thomas Monk to students here at Welch College, when he comes up in systematic theology class or in a class I teach on Baptist ecclesiology, um, I, you know, I try to point out to students you have access to so many resources kind of at your fingertips that people in the 16, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s would not have had. And so to see the way in which he draws on the tradition and sort of marshals the arguments, the best arguments of the tradition in order to uh, confess and defend orthodoxy, is, is something that's really instructive for us. I mean, I don't know that we have any other excuse for not acquainting ourselves uh, with the best of the early church, the medieval period, the Reformation, the Protestant scholastics, all of which he draws on, uh, except for just kind of negligence. These things are available to us, and we have more access uh, than than he would have. And and he used these things to, to defend the faith and to inform uh, his doctrine and his teaching. And I think we can learn from that. I also think, and this is related to that, his commitment to defending um, the ecumenical teachings of the early church on the doctrine of the Trinity are, are instructive. I, I don't get the sense from reading Thomas Monk's writings that the guy's just a troublemaker. I don't, I don't think he's like looking for a debate He's not looking to to write something against Matthew Caffin just for the sake of being uh, a controversialist. I don't think he's interested in that at all. He realizes the theological and and maybe to be more specific, the soteriological significance of these doctrines for the church and for the salvation of of individuals. And so he writes in order to, to defend these things, to safeguard uh, the teachings of the church and those who would who would hear and repent and believe the gospel. Uh, so these are gospel issues for him, and that's why he, why he takes up to to write on them. And he doesn't do it just on his own arguments, but in trying to show 
these are the beliefs of the of the church uh, Catholic throughout the ages. So yeah, so making the use the best use of the resources we have, and knowing when and how to best defend orthodoxy, um, I think those are, are two really important things that we can learn from Thomas Monk. I want to close with this statement that Jesse wrote that I think is really good. On Monk, he says he is a model of committing oneself to the ministerial and theological dilemmas of one's own day by drawing from the best parts of the Christian tradition. Monk reminds us that in the realms of theology and biblical orthodoxy, innovation is not the gold standard. Mm. Hey, man. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I'll say, I would encourage uh, our listeners to, to just look online, find an Orthodox creed online, uh, 1679. And, you know, look at look at the articles there, and I think it corrects some maybe misunderstandings of the English General Baptist of the period. But look, but based upon what you said there, look specifically uh, at the preface to that work. They talk so much about like they don't care about novelty, they don't care about innovation. What they want to do is be faithful to the biblical text uh, and what the church has taught throughout the ages, and so so they try their best to uh, to do that. Sounds very similar to the opening words of the Second London Confession. Yeah, sounds like maybe they were using that when they wrote it. <laughs> the Second London Confession. It maybe so. I, you know, I would. Uh, quite frankly, uh, I am of the opinion that that would be great. I would love that. I, uh, I'm all for highlighting. I'm all for highlighting these consistent overlaps and con- connections. Uh, between Baptists of the period, uh, general and particular. Uh, these are not isolated people in isolated groups who have very little interaction or have no interaction with one another, no interest in one another. Uh, and I, th- I think an Orthodox creed is an attempt to demonstrate that, is we want to be found uh, within the great tradition and identify ourselves with with Protestants. Um, and so I, th- I think that spirit is is very apparent in the text um, and I think that's something we miss looking back uh, by drawing too hard of lines between people like General and particular Baptists. And on that note, we will conclude. And so we always urge you to stay Baptist, our friends. And I think this will draw us to the end of the 17th century in our Baptist body. On Gill. So stay tuned. Stay Baptist, Jesse. Yes, everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.